Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance and HR to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Welcome to the Ethics Experts. I am here with Zach Friedman. Zach, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, coming on. So I read your book uh, earlier this year, and I just really loved it. It really resonated a lot with me. Um, you know, Thank you. I'm sure I'm sure you know, you know, deciding to write a book into a field that you know has has a lot of books in it, so to speak, um, is probably kind of a scary task. But I just found yours to be it really rose above the din of other books like it. Um, and I just, uh, it just, I thought it was just really a phenomenal book. The ethos of it, um, you know, it was just a really fresh, uh, fresh take on it. What drove you to kind of write the book? Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm really glad that you love the lemonade life. It, it definitely means a lot to me. You know, there were several motivations to write the lemonade life. I had a, an amazing opportunity, as you know, from reading the book, uh, in the opening section to the book, which is my lunch with Warren Buffett. And I had this phenomenal opportunity to go out to Omaha with a group of folks and sit down with Warren Buffett for the day. And it was everything we thought it would be from talking about investing and the economy and business. But that day, as we sat together and had lunch later, I learned a lot about life, a lot more than you would think about just the investing world. And I started hearing, you know, pursuing your purpose in life and, and really thinking about your life, not just as a job, but as something that you really look fundamentally inside to. And I think so many people are chasing things in life, right? They're chasing to work on Wall Street or start a tech company in Silicon Valley. And they end up doing things that their friends are doing or they think they're supposed to do or their parents push them into. And really about how do you carve your own path? And so a lot of that started with Warren Buffett um, as one of the inspirations to write this book. But I really want to give people a new perspective, a fresh perspective, as you said earlier, um, about how to really live your best life, which I call the lemonade. Um, so what were you doing when you met when, when you met Warren Buffett? I mean, you kind of, uh, you have a great education. What track were you on? Like what job were you in when you, when you, when you had that opportunity? So I was in business school at Wharton Business School uh, when I had a chance to meet Warren Buffett. And what were you doing prior to going back to business school? So I worked in investment banking at Morgan Stanley before business school um, and then uh, went to business school and, and law school. Um, yeah. And I guess both of the, you know, my brother used to work at, at Goldman Sachs and he would kind of talk about how you'd see a lot of guys, um, you know, making a ton of money, working this great, highly sought after career. And there was like just no happiness there, which is kind of ironic, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, look, the definition of happiness is really different for everyone. And a lot of people, as I said earlier, are chasing, right? They're, they're chasing an opportunity to work on Wall Street, to work at Goldman Sachs or to work at, you know, many of the other great on Wall Street, not because they, they love it, right? Maybe they're chasing money. Maybe they're chasing prestige. Maybe they're chasing a job they think they're supposed to do. Um, but a lot of times that happiness is not underlying. And if it is, by all means, you know, spend your time pursuing those things. If you want to work in finance and that's your passion um, and you get motivated by it and you think you're creating impact, wonderful. If it's not, if, if that's not the underlying reason why you get up every single morning, then you're probably doing the wrong thing. And you can throw as much money as you want at someone, but at the end of the day, it's never actually going to make you feel fulfilled in your life. No matter how much money you have, you will not feel fulfilled. It might be easier. You might be able to, you know, have possessions and assets that you've always wanted. Um, but fundamentally, it's not going to change who you are inside. It only helps with, you know, some of the external things. And so you really have to fundamentally think about why do you get up every morning? You know, wh wh why, what do you do? Why do you do what you do? And if you can't answer those questions, then you're probably in the wrong job. So, I mean, we've all heard this though, right? I mean, growing up, you heard money can't buy happiness and all that stuff. And yet it seems like every generation, we all kind of fall. I mean, I'll speak, speak for myself. Like, I feel like I fell into that at some level earlier in my, my career as well. Like, what do you attribute that to? Why, why do we all keep making the same mistakes our forefathers make, so to speak? It's, it's a great question. And I, I think we're all guilty of it, right? It's like, we hear this age old wisdom and, you know, as cliche and as corny as it sounds, you know, I, I think each generation just doesn't believe it, right? They're like, okay, yeah, sure, dad, sure, grandpa, sure, grandma. Uh, I appreciate all that advice. But, you know, it's a different time. It's a different era. I know better. And so I think it's kind of that, like, youthful optimism, which is great to have. Um, but there is some wisdom that goes along with experience. And so you're right. You know, forefathers have, have passed that on from generation to generation. But I think there's, like, this mistrust that we have that's, that's inside that we think we know better. We think we can do it better. And a lot of times that works out, right? You think about innovation and in, in business and technology, um, you know, it's not always the same way of thinking. Um, but there are, there are these like age old ideas that um, these aphorisms that, that hold true across generations. And so, 
you know, a lot of people have to learn, learn the hard way, right? A lot of people start out, they do one thing. Um, but it's not so much do you make that mistake on the front end. It's really do you have the courage to change your path along the way? And I think a lot of people will just make that mistake in the beginning, right? They'll do the thing they think they're supposed to do mm-hmm. um, because they don't, they don't believe what they've been told or they think it's the right thing at the time. But a lot of people just continue on that path, right? They continue in a job that doesn't give them fulfillment or they, they, they think they have to do to keep up appearances. But it's really those individuals who have the unique courage to actually stop and change their path, proactively change their path, right? And to stop along that path of copying and chasing and keeping up with the Joneses to do something that they feel that fulfillment. And so those are the people who find the courage. Those are the people who can step out. And those are the people I'd be watching because they're the people who really find more fulfillment and can change the world because they, they can identify their purpose. And the people who can identify their purpose, those are what I call daring disruptors. They're the people who can create change and disruption in this world. So I'd love to hear how you feel like because I agree, this is, it takes a lot of courage to say, you know what, I was going to med school and I don't want to be a doctor anymore and you have a semester left, okay? Some, say, some would say that that's stupid. Some would say like, wow, that's really courageous. Um, where does like grit play into this? And maybe talk a little bit about like the marginal, the diminishing marginal returns of grit in the context of this hitting this eject button when it's best for your life, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, look, grit is incredibly important, right? Um, Angela Duckworth wrote a great book on grit, and it, it really is important as you're as you're navigating your career, navigating your path. And yeah, it takes it takes a ton of courage, as you said, to reject um, you know medical school in the last semester and just say, look, I'm not going to do this. It's not what I'm I'm meant to do. Um, at the same time, there is a diminishing you know marginal rate of return. So you really have to think about like measuring you know managing, I'd say, the grit versus like what's realistic in your life. And it's not like you need to be this rebel rouser that just quits everything every time your ideas or your mind changes. That's not what it's about. It's not about always like going against the grain automatically. It's, it's really about just connecting with what you want to accomplish in life and, and, and how you want to do it. And I think most people are what stuck when I call a lemon life, which is really built on a few things. It's built on settling. It's built on chasing. It's built on pretending. And 99% of people live there, whether they realize it or not, right? They're, they're chasing a, a, a dream that's not going to happen. They're stuck in a career where they think they're supposed to work. Um, they're miserable in their work life and it carries over into their personal life, but they don't realize it. Um, but they don't, they don't really connect their purpose and possibility, which is the basis for the lemonade life. And when you think about purpose, which is the, as I said before, the underlying reason why you do what you do, it's the reason you get up every morning. Um, a lot of people don't think of it that way, right? They just kind of mechanically get up every morning and go to, jo- go to their job and earn a paycheck. That's, that's what we're trained to do. Um, but when you, when you think about the reason you get up every morning and why you're doing what you do, and you connect that to possibility, which is endless opportunity, and you can do that through action, that's how you lead the lemonade life. And you can escape the lemon life um, and make that transition to the lemonade life by doing five switches, which I talk about in the book, but that's really the basis. And so when you think about connecting grit and thinking about your purpose, um, you have to really weigh the two. Uh, but I would always put purpose kind of the forefront of anything else, grit, hustle, grind, and the like. Yeah. I, I, I love how you put that. I think that's right. I think like maybe it's grit without kind of authentic um, introspection and like that work that you need to do to see like, okay, well, what is my real purpose? What actually kind of resonates deeper than a sort of monetary level? Once that's kind of uncovered, then to your point, it's great to apply that grit in a direction that you have a high confidence interval that like, man, this is what I, what I'm meant to be doing. But I feel like, you know, perhaps people just get so caught up in that, that rat race. They never even have that, that sort of discussion with themselves or like that, that analysis of themselves to know if they should sort of re aim their grit in a new direction or something. Absolutely. Yeah, you said it very well. Um, yeah, so I just read that book, Grit, and, you know, I'm, uh, I, it, I thought it was super interesting because, you know, that's such an important, important element, like in anyone's success, right? In any field that you're in, they always have a certain level of grit, but I think you're right. I think it's aimed uh, in or housed in sort of a vehicle of purpose that's, that's authentic and real. Um, so how interesting was that, right? You're in, uh, you're in MBA school, you've already had some, you know, some sort of success in your career, you're on this track, and then you have this meeting with Warren Buffett. You know, for the people who haven't read the book, like what, what really resonated with you and made you kind of re-examine your own, you know, your own life and decide, hey, maybe I'm not on my lemonade path. 
Yeah, you know, it, it was just a fundamental experience of sitting with Warren Buffett, right? And, and building up to, you know, you're meeting one of the you know, greatest investors of all time who really has kind of done his own track, right? I mean, he wasn't someone that, you know, he, he's from Omaha, Nebraska. He had a chance to, you know, go to New York and spend time with Benjamin Graham, but he didn't choose to work on Wall Street, right? I mean, how powerful is that? I mean, how many people right. can you name that don't spend their career when they're an investment investor uh, or a financial whiz and don't spend it in New York? And they go back to Omaha, Nebraska, and to build an empire there, um, it's interesting, right? And he kind of does his own thing, right? You don't see him kind of chasing technology stocks in the 90s, right? And, and you know, you ask him, I mean, he's changed a little bit now with some of his investments, but back then, you know, if you ask him, hey, why don't you invest in all these high-flying tech stocks? And his answer very simply was, I don't understand them, right? Which is, I mean, that statement alone takes a lot of courage to say, I don't <laughs> understand them, right? I mean, right. I mean, there's day traders who, you know, don't, don't, you know, didn't go to business school. They're investing in technology stocks all day long and have one of the best investors of all time tell you that. Um, it's interesting, right? I mean, that's very authentic to say that. And um, I just heard a lot of themes that obviously I, I've been thinking about before, uh, but just to hear them hammered home from such a successful individual um, and to hear that different perspective was pretty groundbreaking for me. And so I wanted to share kind of all the things that I've learned, um, you know, working in finance and, and running a company uh, and other experiences of how can I share that and impact other people to kind of teach them this lesson um, that, you know, no matter who you are, where you come from, what you do for a living, how much money you have, that everyone has a shot at greatness. And you have to find the greatness that works for you. It's not going to be the same as Nick's greatness or Zach's greatness or your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister. It's, it's literally your individual greatness. Maybe it's built on money. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's built on public service. Maybe it's built on, you know, creating impact. Um, maybe it's built on compliance, right? You know, it, it, you have to find the path that's right for you. And that path may be messy. It may be five steps forward, 10 steps back, three to the side, whatever it is. The earlier you can find it, the better, but it's never too late to make a change in your life. And, and maybe there's no change in your life, right? It's not like you have to change and you have to create this better life. Maybe your life's amazing right now, but it's really assessing who you are and where you want to go and you know, taking these proactive steps that a lot of people just kind of push to the side and never actually evaluate. Yeah, I love the, I mean, this book is just so full of like great anecdotes. And I love that part that you just said that like, it's never too late to change. And there's, there's a lot of great stories um, in your book about people who, you know, are historically wildly successful who didn't get started until later. What do you think it is rooted in, like, courage is doing something not in the absence of fear, but in spite of it, right? So, like, what is the essence of that fear, you think, that keeps people trapped in not pursuing those more fulfilling roles? I think people are afraid, right? I mean, I, I think it's a fundamental human condition, right? I mean you think about the human condition and there's, there's kind of a flight from fear, right? Um, you know, we have survival of the fittest. Absolutely. But I think there's this human condition that, that people genuinely are afraid, right? It's the cliche of, I don't want to step outside my comfort zone, right? People are comfortable in the now, right? They're comfortable in their job. They're comfortable in their relationships. They're comfortable in their social network. And to do anything that, that differs from that, uh, it can be scary, um, it can be a major risk that you feel that you're taking. It can be disruptive in a negative way. And people are afraid to kind of find out what that may be like. I mean, you have people uh, like you, like me, who are entrepreneurs who, who decide to go outside their comfort zone. There's other people who do similar things in other facets. Um, but I think fear is one of the, the biggest roadblocks, as I call them in the book, that really, really prevents people from, from leading a life of possibility. And you know, we all know that people who take risks fail, and that's a, a major uh, experience that you're going to, you know, feel over and over and over again. I talk about it at the, in the Lemonade Life a lot, a lot of successful people, um, people in all walks of life. But I think fear, um, it's not easy to conquer, but, but if you can at least face it and you have an outlook that you're able to, to, to weather the ups and downs of life and be able to you know, bounce back from failure. And I talk about how to do that in the book. Um, you know, fear will always be there, but you're at least able to mitigate it and control it so that you can, you can get from point A to point B. Um, you know, I talk about these, this character in the book, you know, there's four characters in the book that you meet in the lemonade life, three are living the lemon life and one's leading the 
lemonade life. And one of the folks in the lemon life is the eternal excuser, right? These are the people who make excuses about their entire life. Fear is one of them. Um, but these are people, we've all met them before, right? They're like, I'm too old, right? Can't do that. I don't have enough money or, oh, it's never going to work out or, oh, you're going to fail doing that. And like, they're always from the, the sidelines kind of shouting at you, right? Or maybe it's the other half of your brain that's always telling you no. Um, but, you know, it, it's the folks who can kind of get around that artificial electric fence, as I call it in the book, that, you know, when they can, when they can see it's not really as scary as you think it is. Those are the people who are able to kind of, you know, extricate themselves from that environment and, and pursue a path that they want to, they want to live. Um, I love those four characters. And um, I felt like at certain times in certain areas of my own life, I've kind of worn sort of some of these different masks. And I think to your point, yes. it's always kind of rooted in some, some kind of fear, right? Uh, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm just going to change my mind or, you know, uh, I didn't get that job because that guy was a jerk or, you know what, this job is good enough for now. Like all those things, they seem, you know, while I aspire to be that daily, that, that daring disruptor, I, I don't think I've been that in every single aspect of my life and at all times, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and that's an excellent point. You know, the, the four characters that you meet, um, an eternal excuser, a steady settler, a change chaser, and then the daring disruptor who's in the lemonade life. Um, in one sense, they're kind of all four different characters. Uh, but as you said, very, very smart uh, in a smart way is that, you know, a lot of people, all of us really have those four elements inside of us, right? At times we're daring, at times we make excuses, at times we're chasing, I mean, at times we settle. And the question is like, you know, necessarily, you know, can you be one of those people, right? Could you be the daring disruptor and exit the lemon life? Um, or is it really modulating among the four? And how can you kind of maximize being a daring disruptor, even if you still make excuses, settle or chase at some point in your life? Um, so you're, you're a finance guy. I have kind of a finance background as well. And I loved your use of alpha and beta in terms of people's career. Can we just dive into that a little bit? Because I think that framework really translates well into a career. And uh, I just, I marked up that <laughs> I marked up that, that part of the book pretty uh, pretty heavy. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, so um, I'll try to break it down very simply. So there's two concepts in finance. Um, you finance people out there will understand what this is, and other folks who um, have not studied Greek or in a fraternity or sorority won't know what it is. But there's two two Greek letters, alpha and beta. And investment investors or investment managers will use these terms when they think about investing, um, let's say, in a, in a stock or a mutual fund or a hedge fund. And basically, beta is the way to think about beta is kind of um, like the beta of a stock is, you know, how risky that stock is relative to the market. Um, so technology stocks, biotechnology stocks are kind of high flying, right? So they're going to have a higher beta, um, more mature blue chip stocks um, that might be in the Dow Jones, for example, will be closer to one. Um, but you might have a, a beta that's much higher than that. And so alpha uh, is thinking about outperformance. Um, so, you know, if, if your target, you know, financial return in a year, let's say the stock market gets, you know, 8% return in a year. Um, if you can create an investment that gets, you know, 10% return in a year. So 10 minus eight is a 2% um, uh, return above the average. So that's like, an, that's the alpha, right? That's the return generated above the, the projected, you know, average return. So you kind of have these two concepts, alpha and beta, right? That are using an investing context, but they can also be applied to your career, even if you don't understand nothing about finance and maybe my explanation uh, made no sense to you. But, but the way to think about it with your career is, so beta, again, which, which I talked about in the first part, the beta of your career, most people are kind of chasing to be you know, in, in a particular industry, right? They're like, I need to go to Wall Street because that's the place that people make money or I need to go to Silicon Valley. That's where entrepreneurs strike it big with tech companies. And a lot of people chase the market, right? They chase that market return. They want to they wanna be in an industry that does really well because they see their friends going there. They, you know, read it in Forbes and see it on TV um, where everyone's going to be successful. That's where you need to be. But instead of thinking about the beta, like, I, you know, rather than going to Hollywood, think about what you individually can do about your own outperformance. And that's alpha. Alpha is all about outperformance. Remember, it's like getting that 10% return when you were only supposed to get 8% return. And so the way you create alpha is not by chasing that industry. It's about chasing the job or the career that makes sense for you. So you don't have to go to Wall Street or Hollywood or the Silicon Valley. I mean, maybe you're meant to work in Iowa as an entrepreneur, you know, doing something that's totally different than that. And you can still create higher alpha doing that job 
than chasing one of these other jobs because that's what the market thinks you're supposed to do. And so if you can apply that again in anything, right? I mean, you can go say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a teacher because I think I can create more alpha by impacting more students, right? Educating the next generation, preparing them to be leaders than I could ever do earning you know, X dollars working in a company in New York City, right? And so you can evaluate that and think about it, being a healthcare worker on the front lines, being a police officer, a firefighter, a first responder, someone who works in public service on another facet, serving in the military or the armed forces, right? Any way you can create impact in your life, those are the people when you focus on kind of that individual out or team outperformance, that's where you want to be placing your bets rather than just chasing the market return that you would get with beta, so to speak. Yeah, and kind of under the you know, in, in undercurrent to this whole approach and your whole approach really um, kind of is rooted in one of those last things you said, which is thinking in bets. Like we make bets with our time every single day. You know, again, you can carry this sort of stock analogy forward. Like you ostensibly repurchase your entire portfolio every single morning that the market opens, right? So if you're buying and holding something, you're buying that thing over and over again every single day, anytime you don't decide to sell it. And I think we do that same thing with our career. When we settle in a job, uh, that we don't want, right? Every day you show up to that work, you're basically signing your offer letter again. And um, I think if we can see that, like that's a conscious decision, it can open up to the, it opens us, opens our minds to the fact that like, oh, well, we're making a decision here. There might be a different choice that might be better for me, uh, you know, for my quote unquote portfolio over the long run. That's absolutely right. And that's, that's a great insight. And, you know, I, I talk about this in the Lemonade Life and I also talk about it in a, in a TED talk I gave on happiness at work. You know, we spend, up to 70,000 hours of our lives at work. And, you know, in the lemonade life, you know, I talk about, you know, this is a big theme is like, you know, whatever happened yesterday or the day before, five years ago, last week, it doesn't matter because every day it resets. And it's what you said, you know, if you're going to show up to a job every single day, um, you know, you're basically signing that offer letter again, because you're continuing with that job. And maybe that's great. Maybe you love your job and it's, it's the one for you. But if it's not, you know, every day you don't quit, every day you don't leave, every time you don't apply to a new job, you are essentially every single day recommitting to that same bad habit or that bad job or you know a lifestyle that you don't like um, again if you like it keep pursuing it but if you don't um, every single day life resets right and I talk about this in the lemonade life you know every day is a new opportunity of greatness you have 365 chances every single year to do this so you know on day four you don't need to resign right you can change um, you know but, but it's gonna come from you right it's, it's a proactive exercise no one's gonna do this for you right no one's gonna tap you on the shoulder and say Nick hey it's time to uh, to leave your job um, you know this is a choice that you have to make no one's gonna, gonna convince you to do that so a lot of this is all about taking action for you. And that's, that's one of the five switches I talk about in the book, which is motion, which is the fifth switch. Yeah. That, that M motion is what really allows all that sort of pre-work or all that stuff that's gone on inside your head to actually translate into like a new, a new outcome in life, right? Like you have to do actually do something different in the real world to get kind of the lemonade life benefits. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, a, a lot of the, there's five switches in the book and these switches are, just like light switches. So you can imagine you can flip all of them on. And so these are the five commonalities, the five characteristics that the world's greatest leaders, the most successful people have. Um, and we all have them inside of all of us. And so the five switches allow us to kind of move from the lemon life to the lemonade life. The first four switches, uh, which are perspective, risk, independence, and self-awareness. Um, all of those things are inside of you. They're built on mindset. Um, they're built on a perspective. They're built on the way that you see the world. The fifth switch is motion. And if you don't have motion, if you don't actually put in the work, you don't put in the time, the other four are completely irrelevant. So we can talk all day about theory. Um, the book's not a theoretical book. It's very practical. But if you don't actually put in the work and put in the time and the energy, you can forget about everything else. And so the people who actually put in the work and stop talking about it, I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've come across in life, how many businesses or startups that spend like, months and weeks and years and strategizing and planning and scenario planning and you know this exercise and that exercise and what about this and the market and the cut it's like go do the work like go actually out there and go build your business and it doesn't mean you can't plan or you can't think about scenarios or downside protection but you have to go out and do the actual work like stop talking about it like go out and do it and if it works it works if it doesn't like move on to something else yeah, we get so caught up in planning to plan and, you know, white, whiteboarding that to your point, the, the plans never even, I mean, the plans never even work anyways to get punched in the face. You know what I'm saying? Right. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> right. It's right. It's like you plan for things and it never happens the way you plan for it anyway. 
Great. right? And I've, I've seen so many, it's, it's, it's a real fault with CEOs and, and other leaders. And they spend a lot of time planning and writing big reports and, you know, this scenario and that scenario. But it's like, just, just go out and do it. Because a lot of times you miss your opportunity, right? And now people are like, I'm going to start this company because I think it's a big trend now. And it's like, well, eight months later, they haven't started and the trend's like almost over, right? And so they didn't capitalize on <laughs> right. it, right? Right. Um, so I'm reading this book called Range right now. And have, have you read that? I haven't read it, but I, I do know the book. Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. And it's the premise is that, I don't know if it's like the answer to grit. It's, uh, it's just the fact that like, you have to be able to change your mind. You have to be able to try different things. And um, many times when you free yourself up to try those different things, you can find that thing, you know, whether it resonates with your purpose or you're just, uh, you're just, you know, well built for it or whatever that allows you to really generate that alpha we were talking about. And it gave this anecdote about this guy who first he wanted to be a monk and then uh, that didn't work. And then he wanted to be a pastor and that didn't work. And then he wanted to be an artist and he got laughed out of the art school and he said, okay, I'm going to do drawing. And he thinks at drawing and he's like, all right, I'm going to be watercolor. And then he did, does that. And then he's going to maybe, maybe be a carpenter and blah, blah, blah. And then finally he goes out into a storm with uh, oil paints and paints, you know, this, this phenomenal painting. And this is Van Gogh. So like this wasn't until like his mid thirties or late thirties that he even started doing the type of painting that was so revolutionary at that time. Yeah. Tried 40 different things. I mean, it was a, it was a really, a, really an, an interesting story about somebody who just sort of like doggedly pursued, like he didn't care about the public failure at all. Right. Hey, I was going to be a mm -hmm. monk, not, but without that, that courage, right. That allowed him to pick something up and put it back down, which again, kind of flies in the face of, you know, maybe some of the, um, you know, the rudimentary takeaways people have from a book like grit, um, kind of contrary to some of the things that, that you espouse in your book. Um, that's what freed him up to actually become the greatest or, you know, become this guy who, you know, hundred million dollar paintings uh, were selling af af after his death. Absolutely. That, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it takes a lot of courage. I mean, think about that, you know, to try those different things, be willing to fail. And I think the biggest impediment that people have in their lives is what other people think about them, right? right. People will not do other things because they think they're going to get laughed at, right? They're going to be, you know, chastised by their parents. Their friends are going to be like, you know, what is Nick doing? What is he thinking? Like, what, 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 how could he possibly give about this to go do that. And people start questioning it. But the people who actually, you know, at some point in your life, whether it's today or tomorrow or five years from now, when you actually have the courage to go do and be like Van Gogh, as you gave in that example, it is such a freeing thing when you're like, I, I literally don't care what other people think. Like, I'm just, I'm going to go do this because I believe in it. I may be wrong. I may be wrong the next 10 times, 20 times, but I actually, I believe in what I'm doing. I think I have a path here. Here's why it's not just pie in the sky, but like, I actually, I actually believe in this and I think it's possible. Um, when you can actually do that without other people and thinking about what they're going to think about you, that is such a freeing exercise and a freeing mentality for you to do. It really creates so much more possibility in your life that probably is not existent today. If you're worried about whether other people think about you. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it probably plays a role at sort of multiple levels. One, just allowing you to try something new, but then also it allows you the freedom of like those failures that you're going to need along the way down that path that you decided to hop over to um, for you to refine it, right? I mean, if you're so worried about like uh, the public, um, you know, the public display of your failure or success, then, you know, when, once you make that jump, that first, you know, if you're still concerned about what I'm saying, then once you make that jump, that first failure is going to sting really bad. But if, again, if you don't care, then you can make those nine failures before you get that 10th one that really gives you that unique voice or, you know, allows you to really break through on this path of purpose that you've decided to, to move over to. Yeah. And it's twofold, right? I mean, the, the people who are most successful in life, right? I mean, you, and I talk about a ton of them in the lemonade life. There's a lot of stories about probably you haven't heard before about folks who become billionaires, become successful in their fields. No one really remembers the failures. I mean, right. that, that's the thing. It's like, once you become successful, no one remembers the failures, right? We, no one's ever, you know, and there might be like a photo on the internet somewhere about, you know, when you first started or you failed, but like no one really re remembers that, right? So that's kind of the first point I'd make. The second point is, even if you never become successful, you know, if you're pursuing something that you enjoy, you're able to make a living from it, you're, you're genuinely good at it, right? That, that, that's the path you should pursue, right? It, does, it doesn't mean like if you have no talent, you should spend like 20 years trying to be an actor in Hollywood, right? And, and you, you know, forget about your family and you don't take care of them. That, that's not what I'm talking about. But again, like if you can pursue something that you're genuinely good at, you can make a, an income and take care of your family, 
it gives you purpose. It gives you underlying meaning. Even if you never become the number one in your field or the number 100 in your field, that's a much more fulfilling life than doing something you don't like for, for a paycheck that, you know, it doesn't bring you the enjoyment or fulfillment that you want in your life. A lot of people will never take that bet, right? They'll always go for the comfort and the security. Um, we see it all the time, but the folks who can actually do what I just described, it, your happiness just, it, it just multiplies beyond belief because you, you have that fulfillment and that sense of purpose. And that purpose is really the driver behind all of this. It's, it, it, it really is the driver. And when you understand your life purpose, again, it's a very freeing exercise that you can do to just understand why you do what you do. Why do you get up every morning? Most people, again, mechanically, automatically just get up. The alarm goes off, they get up, they go work out, they go to the office or they work from home now, come home, eat dinner, you know, just do it, do the same thing over and over and over again without even blinking. And again, if you like it, wonderful. But if you don't, like you really need to think about why you're doing what you do and make sure that your purpose connects with your actions. Yeah. And again, so it just kind of gets back to that, to that introspection. Like, is this the path that I want to be on? Is this how I want to be spending my time? And just knowing that, you know, this long way down, this fear of uh, falling off the building is really kind of unfounded because, you know, if you're pursuing your, your purpose, again, assuming that you're not in sort of abject poverty in pursuit of it, you know, the people who are relying on you, you know, still have food to eat and so forth. That pursuit in and of itself is usually more fulfilling than that uh, quote unquote dead end job that you maybe had been settling for or making an excuse for or whatever. That's right. So, um, you know, the whole purpose of this uh, podcast is to help folks in the ethics department or the HR department or the compliance department um, to really elevate their, um, their role. So a lot of times folks in these departments are viewed as a cost center. They're the first ones to get their, um, their budgets cut and so forth. However, kind of to bring this sort of full circle back to the topic of your book, these departments are really the ones who are most able to affect the cultures of the organizations that they're in because they wrap around the entire, you know, the, the collection of silos that is, uh, you know, that kind of tends to erect once a, you know, a business gets to a certain size. These guys are, are able to affect these things. And, you know, we want to get kind of thought leaders on who understand, you know, work-life balance, who understand sort of job fulfillment, who understand sort of culture and help provide some actionable tips for these ethics and compliance professionals or these HR professionals who are trying to elevate uh, their own role within their organization to you know, make a bigger difference in their workplaces. So I'd love for you to kind of, let's talk about this jerk pyramid and let's talk about some like actionable things that somebody uh, who's maybe part of a large organization uh, that maybe stinks from the head can do to kind of fix their you know, fix their little corner of the world in the short term, maybe kind of frame out this, this jerk pyramid, and then we can kind of dive into, you know, how we can attack it, you know? Absolutely. And I agree with everything you just said, Nick, and I, there's a few things to unpack, and I'll definitely get to the jerk pyramid. You know, first, I completely agree with you, you know, human resources, professionals, um, ethics, compliance, you know, people are the engine of the organization, right? And you're right, too often that gets forgotten. People focus on the product, they focus on the brand, they focus on the cost centers and they don't really focus on the people and people without people in your organization, there is no organization. You can have the best brand, you can have the best product, but you need the right people and the right culture. And, and a lot of people, you know, they've heard that before. They don't actually believe it though, right? People focus like you have a great product. It's going to sell. Don't worry about it. You know, HR, let's just, let's just cut, you know, cut budgets. Let's cut people. It's not the way to think about it because if you don't have the right culture, and I argue this in the lemonade life, you really can't have a successful company. And I, and I, I genuinely mean that. And so there's this concept in the lemonade life called the jerk pyramid. And I think we've all seen this in organizations before. Um, the jerk pyramid, if you think about your company as a pyramid, right, just think of it as a triangle. Um, the folks at the top, you know, most organizations are not flat. I mean, people talk about meritocracies and flat organizations, but you know, the bulk of organizations are kind of this top-down pyramid. And you have, you know, the leadership at the top. And if the leadership at the top are are jerks, right? They don't treat people well. They disrespect them. They don't create a culture of inclusion, a culture of empathy. Um, that tends to trickle down from the top down to the bottom, right? The the top managers talk to the middle managers. The middle managers who really have a chance to, you know ignore, so to speak, the, the bad culture that's coming from the top, but they don't because the middle managers want to be the top managers. So they kind of carry that same, um, you know, speak loudly with it, with a big stick. And, 
you know, don't show empathy, don't show inclusion, um, don't motivate, don't inspire, but they kind of, you know, issue these edicts um, from above. And, you know, unfortunately, the bulk of folks who work in the organization, which is pretty much everybody else who's not a top manager or a mid-level or manager, um, you know, faces the brunt of that. And, you know, what kind of culture is that? It's not a culture um, that you really want to rise to. There's not a focus on, you know, ethics or compliance or, you know, great uh, HR policies that are going to inspire people, motivate people, want them to stay for the long term, you know, career development, mentoring. Um, and so, you know, if you have a jerk pyramid at your company, at your organization, you know, you have a couple of choices, right, to talk about some things that you can do. And I talk about this in The Lemonade Life. Um, you know, number one, you can leave the company, right? You can leave as fast as you and out the door because if there's not going to be a fundamental change at the top within the company. We see this in so many organizations. That's not, is that really a place that you want to be, right? If it's somewhere you want to actually invest your career, no matter how much money you make, no matter how wonderful the product is, how wonderful the service is, if there is a bad culture, right? If there's no culture of ethics, if there's no culture of compliance, if there's no culture where you feel valued, why would you ever want to spend your time there? So right. that, that's the first thing you can do is, is literally leave. Second thing you can do is you can help try to affect change. And again, you don't need to be a middle manager. You don't need to be a senior manager. You don't have to have a, you know, a, a chief in front of your title. You can be an intern. Um, you know, I've seen this at companies before. I've seen people, you know, raise their hand in meetings, right? Start a, you know, a subcommittee, right? You know, or organize, um, you know, a, a, an offsite or a part of an offsite where you kind of bring up these topics and. Look, some companies, you know, you may get laughed at. They may say, hey, that's great. I appreciate it. But you're just an intern and, you know, you don't understand how the world works. And look, you may hear that, right? We, we, we've all heard that before. Um, but the companies that really want to listen, right? The managers that really want to listen and make a change um, and embrace that culture. And again, that's hard to do. I, I'd say that's in the minority. But the folks that do, that do want to do that, they're, what they're going to see over time is that not only will you increase employee satisfaction, but you also increase productivity. And your, your teams are going to be happier. They're going to want to stay longer. Um, it's going to lead to goodwill. It's also going to help drive sales because the happier people are at work, the more willing they are to believe in the mission, to believe in the concept of the product or the service. Um, they're going to spread that joy to customers and they're going to spread it to uh, folks on, on, uh, with clients and they're going to share it with their friends and their families. And it's going to create positive buzz. It's going to create goodwill and it's actually going to help your business, help your productivity and help your employee satisfaction. So there's a lot you can do from the inside. Um, you know, and again, if you're working for a boss who happens to be within this jerk pyramid, you know, you can try to change groups. You can try to change divisions of your company if it's large enough. Um, you can leave the company altogether or you can try to create change from within. So you have a lot of options to do, but don't just settle. Please do not stay in a company where there's a lack of um, empathy and a lack of inclusion and ethics and compliance and they don't really care about people. Yeah, th I think that was super well put. I think you summed that up beautifully. And I think part of the danger in settling and staying there is look, you're either bailing water out of the, the boat or you're not, you know what I'm saying? So if you're going to end up settling, it's going to end up changing you and it's going to, um, you know, whatever impact you could be making, you're obviously not making it if you're not trying to go ahead and bail some of that water out. So to your point, if you have that spark of, of life still in you and you don't feel like there's any way for you to like make meaningful change in your, your organization, you need, you either need to recognize, you know, you need to recognize you either need to leave or that you're just going to settle. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Um, so I don't know. I just love that. You know, you got to spread the joy. You're not going to have a company uh, with clients who love you if it's not full of employees who love you as well. And I think this feeds well into this next thing, you know, this job assessment that you have. And you kind of have these five diff different scenarios of right job, right company. And I think a lot of organizations don't recognize that their employees are going through, you know, either um, you know, consciously or subconsciously, they're going through that job assessment framework. Can you kind of just describe that thing? And, you know, maybe we can tie it down to how organizations end up losing their best people when they're not open to, you know, move, moving guys around to different jobs. Yeah. So there's a couple of ways to look at job assessments. And, you know, I think we're all used to reviews, right? We, we get the review kind of at the end of the quarter or, you know, the six month period or the annual review. Sometimes it's one way it comes from your you know, superior down to the employee. Sometimes it's 360 where you get to evaluate people who are more senior than you. Um, I think before you even get to that, it's, it's good to think about, you know, your own job assessment criteria. And, you know, a lot of people will take a job because of practical reasons, totally understandable. You know, it's close to their home. It's the right salary for their family. Um, they just have to, to pay the bills. And 
that totally makes sense. Um, if you're not in a situation like that where you do have some optionality, right? You may be thinking about choosing between two cities or choosing between two types of jobs. You really need to invest the time. And I know it's hard to do because there's this information asymmetry, right? When you join an employer, right? You want to kind of, you know, you want to ask, you don't want to ask too many questions. You don't want to, um, you know, start off with a bad impression. And so it's a little hard maybe to get information or to, you know, start this whole due diligence track. But to the extent you can really think systematically and holistically about not only the job itself, but, you know, who are you working with? Who's your boss? It's usually, you know, you usually have a chance to meet your boss. Sometimes you don't, but who are the colleagues, right? Like, are these are the people, again, you really want to be spending your time with. Your time is limited, right? You have infinite opportunity to do the things you want in your life, but your day-to-day, -day, your time is limited, right? And so do you want to be spending your time and energy for potentially years with this team? Does that make sense to you? So you have to evaluate that. You know, is this the industry you want to be in? Is this the, is this the culture that you want to be in? Again, does it reflect your values? Not just like, is it a cool company and they're selling well and you think they're making a lot of money? Is this, do they have the values and the mission that you actually believe in? A lot of people don't think about that. Um, the values of the organization are so important because it reflects on the culture, reflects on the outlook. You may not agree with every decision, but you know, can you be a part of that team? I would put that a lot higher uh, that I wouldn't necessarily the paycheck. Again, people need paychecks, obviously, but if you have a chance to kind of evaluate other metrics, that's something where you want to focus. And again, you know, I talk about in the Lemonade Life how to do this. It's not just a, a plus minus column when you're evaluating a job. You know, you can assign different values um, based on what's important to you. So, you know, take a scale from one to five, five being the most important. So you may value uh, the team culture at a five um, and, you know, maybe salary is at a three to you. And so you can kind of put the pluses on one column, but, but add values to them. And in the minus column, the things you don't like about the business and or about the job, and you can also rank those and assign a number of value to them. And then everyone's going to have this like risk reward ratio. You know, I talk about how to make decisions in the book and risk reward, another financial term as a way to think about decisions, but everyone has to make their own decision on what they're comfortable with. You're never going to have perfect information. So you're never going to know, Hey, what's it really like on the inside versus the job interview. And so the more you can evaluate these things, before you take the job, while you're at the job, um, and again, this is not just for a job, in all, all decisions in life, I talk about this in the book, um, it's going to give you like a much more grounding and understanding, a full spectrum of what you're getting yourself into, rather than just like, oh, great company, great product, great paycheck, I'm in. And I think that'll save you a lot of headache and heartache um, that a lot of people experience in their job, like six months in, a year in, they're like, what did I just spend my last 12 months on, right? This wasn't, this wasn't a good decision. So why do organizations, do you think, I mean, so this thing is going on all the time. Everyone's kind of doing this job assessment at one level or another, um, especially, you know, the good folks who have a, uh, you know, have options, right? Those are your kind of top performers. Um, like one of the biggest tragedies, I think, is when a company like unwittingly loses somebody great because they didn't do enough to like keep that person, right? So why do you think organizations have such a hard time uh, with this, this kind of internal job assessments thing and having such a blind spot for their good people leaving? I think it depends on the, on, on the organization. And, you know, to be very clear, there are phenomenal organizations out there. You know, it's not like every organization has a jerk pyramid because that's not right. the case. I mean, there are some wonderful companies, wonderful leaders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, um, and everyday employees who are, you know, have a wonderful culture and a wonderful job, um, of, of being inclusive. Um, you know, I think some companies that aren't practicing that, they're not living up to those ideals, um, they tend to put profits before people or they put their product before people or they put their customers before people or their clients before people. Um, everyone has a different philosophy on, on what they think, you know, who are the most important stakeholders, so to speak. Um, some people really put their, their people first no matter what. And we've all heard of these types of companies. I won't name them, but there's great companies that that do this and they've always, you know, fought for their people and you know, people, a lot of people have been there for 30 years. Um, other companies just say, look, you know, we're a brand and this is what we represent and the people are kind of cogs in the wheel and they come in and they leave and um, yeah, you're a great performer, but we have 10,000 of, of you and right. uh, you know, we can't, we can't bend over backwards to help you because you know, this is a hundred year old brand and um, we really appreciate your service to the company, but you know, we can't, you know, make these flexible changes because you know, we'd have to do it for all these other people too, or whatever that, whatever the reason is. So I think it depends on the company. I think, I think the companies that um, can look long-term and really realize the value of uh, an individual, a team, a division that's creating value, that's dedicated to the mission. Again, connecting to that mission is so important. 
they share the values of the company. Those are the people you really want to retain for the long term. And you want to provide incentive. You want to provide flexibility for them. Um, if they have a personal situation, they need to take you know, a leave of absence or they need to work from home, you know, just outside of COVID, just need to work from home. Right. Um, when you can give that flexibility to people and you can really honor them on an individual basis, again, it creates such long-term goodwill. And you know, even if you look at it from a capitalistic perspective, it's going to help your business long-term. Again, happy employees are going to help generate more productivity, more financial returns for the companies. Your shareholders will be happier. Your investors will be happier. And your customers will be happier. And it's, it's just, it's an equation that works. It just works. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that over this next decade, we're going to see a big separation between company, like everything you're saying resonates with me. Obviously, I just, uh, you know, I can't sort of endorse it enough. Uh, but there are still these people out here who, you know, if you said this stuff to them, they'd say, yeah, yeah, that sounds nice. But, you know, they kind of vote with their feet, so to speak. And they vote with their dollars on how they actually think the thing works. And I just think over the next 10 years, we're going to see a massive separation between organizations who get it and those who don't get it. Yes, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. And I think you're seeing a lot of companies now, particularly tech companies that are stepping up and, mm -hmm. you know, being a lot more flexible and kind of, you know, they get it. They've seen what's happened um, because of COVID-19 and they see that, oh, wow, people actually can work from home productively. Right. And wow, this flexible schedule works. And you know, how much happier will people be working from home to have that flexibility to be with their families, um, have work-life balance, so to speak. Um, but even looking at it from a financial perspective, you know, for companies that are heavy and long real estate, they can reduce that real estate footprint, save a lot of capital costs right. um, and operating expenses each year by not having, you know, huge office footprint, you know, so, so you can win both ways. And I think, you know, Twitter with the announcement that, you know, a lot of their employees, most of their employees will be able to work from home, assuming they don't need to be physically in an office um, indefinitely, you know, that that's attractive. And, and right. maybe it's a trend that even grows that you have folks who, you know, company may be based in Silicon Valley, but they live in Iowa because it works for their family. And, you know, as long as they can, you know, perform well, you know, working from home doesn't mean that you have like a freebie and you're watching TV all day. Um, again, you have to be productive. You have to do an excellent job, um, you know, at or above what you would have done in an office. Um, but as long as you can meet that criteria, you're still connecting with your team, you're still interactive, and it doesn't hurt, um, you know, the way your team gels and, and, and your performance, then, you know, I think companies who are innovative and who, who understand and get that are going to win over the next decade. You know, it kind of struck me as you were just talking there that this whole lemonade life thing, it's not just like a cute concept for a book. It's actually like a life philosophy. And there was so much of that lemonade life sort of mentality in your answer about this thing and sort of how a company can use this COVID-19 crisis to create that win-win and to sort of reinforce their culture while giving their, their people uh, what they need while getting that sort of financial um, return. It just kind of struck me because um, it seems to kind of permeate everything you, you do. And I think it's unique that you're able to kind of distill that, distill such a, a kind of a powerful message down into a book that I thought was extremely well-written. Thank you. Thank you very much. And you're right. You know, the Lemonade Life it, it on, one, on one level is for individuals, how we can all live our best life, but it absolutely applies to companies because it's a philosophy of being nimble, innovative, disruptive, thinking about the world differently and, you know, kind of avoiding, again, the lemon life of being a company of being kind of the stodgy, you know, hundred year old, this is the way we've always done it, you know, top down organization. Yeah. How can you be more innovative and, and, and lead the lemonade life at work? as a company within your sector, how can you be disruptive? So there's so many lessons um, for CEOs, for leaders, for companies. I have a lot of, a lot of teams of different companies who have read the book as an entire company um, within their work teams. Um, and it's really just, you know, helped change the way that they see the world and they operate their business. That's gotta be real, really rewarding. So you had this idea to write this book, you wrote it, now it's out there. What's been your biggest, like, what's been a, br a really big surprise from the process or a really big surprise, like, takeaway that people have maybe gathered from the book that you didn't intend or something like that, you know? Well, I'll, I'll just tell you, you know, the process of writing a book um, for writing The Lemonade Life, it's, it's very similar to making a movie. Um, yeah. I don't think I appreciate that as much. I mean, I, I write uh, pretty regularly for Forbes. I have a, a yep. Wonderful um, opportunity to write at Forbes. I've you know had over reached over seventy five million readers through wow. Forbes, um, which I'm very grateful for. And so, you know, writing a book's it, it's different. And you know, I wrote the Lemonade Life, uh, but writing the book is kind of just the beginning. And there's a whole kind of process and big team behind that. You know, my name's on the cover, but 
you know, there's an entire team um, that, that it really is behind it. And I don't, I don't think I appreciate that as much. It was, it was a great learning process for me, but you know, it's, you know, there's editing and um, you know, different types of editors. And um, obviously we spent a lot of time on the cover art, um, which I'm very proud of the lemonade life awesome. uh, book cover, which is cool. Um, and that whole process, right? I mean, you know, you think you just kind of slap on a cover, but you know, we spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about what's the, how's that lemon going to look, you know, how the leaves going to look, is there going to be, you know, some, some, you know, fresh water on those lemons, you know, what, what's the, what's the tint of blue going to look like the hue? Yeah, should we mix uh, serif and non, non-serif? On? Hey, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, we laugh at it, but like, you know, yeah, you have to go through all those things. Right. And so, you know, and it's, you know, it's endorsements for the book and, and the whole marketing process and, you know, um, uh, recording the audiobook. So I, I recorded the audiobook, um, which is great to be in the studio. And cool. so it, it's, it's a lot of work that, that goes into it. Um, and it's more than just, Hey, the book sitting in the bookshelf, uh, or, or, you know, downloading the audiobook. It, you know, it really goes into it. It's a big production and a lot of great people. Um, I had the opportunity to work with, um, uh, at Harper Collins, my publisher and, and, you know, all types of other folks, um, who, who played a part in bringing the lemonade life, um, you know, to bookstores and bookshelves and, uh, audiobooks all around the world. Well, again, I loved it. I can't say enough uh, good things about it. Zach, where can, uh, you know, you mentioned your Forbes, uh, your Forbes, uh, writings, where, where, where can people find you? Tell us a little bit about your business as we lock up and, or as we wrap up and, you know, let us know where people can follow you and learn more about, more about you. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate it, man. So uh, a couple things. Yeah. So uh, The Lemonade Life, uh, it's available everywhere. You can find it at your you know, favorite bookstore from Barnes & Noble, uh, online at Amazon, Walmart, Target, uh, wherever you buy books around the world. Um, the audiobook, which I'm very proud of, um, Apple named it uh, one of the fall's best audiobooks um, and a must listen. Uh, you can get that you know, anywhere you get audiobooks from uh, Audible to Apple. Uh, Google Play, as well as the Kindle as well. Um, also, there's a website if you want to just grab it online. It has all the links, uh, which is LemonadeLifeBook.com, LemonadeLifeBook.com. Love for you to grab a copy or download the audiobook. Uh, you can reach me at ZachFriedman.com, Z-A-C-K-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, all over social media at Zach A. Friedman, uh, Twitter. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. And uh, my company, I'm the CEO uh, of Make Lemonade, um, similar to The Lemonade Life. Make Lemonade is a, a personal finance comparison site. So everything from student loans, personal loans, credit cards, um, you can compare lots of free tools and um, you know, finding the right uh, financial life for you. Um, and that's at makelemonade.co. So would love for you to check out all of those things. I love to hear from um, readers and love to connect with folks uh, everywhere. So please reach out to me anytime. Thanks again, Zach. This was uh, um, great to have you on The Ethics Experts. Great to uh, pick your brain on this stuff that is just super fascinating to me. And um, yeah, just great getting to know you, man. I hope you have a great day. Thanks, man. You too, Nick. Thanks so much for having me, man. Really appreciate it.